Welcome to Going Further and Higher, Shakespeare Martineau's podcast in which we discuss topical or indeed long-running themes in higher and further education. My name is Smita Jamdar and I'm partner and head of education at Shakespeare Martineau and I'm joined today by my colleague Tom Long, who many of you will know as our head of FE, but who is also by day job uh, an employment lawyer who spends uh, much all of his time working for universities and colleges. In today's episode, we're discussing the new guide issued by Universities UK, which was uh, called Challenging the Culture, Tackling Staff and Student Sexual Misconduct. It was published earlier this month. The guidance describes itself as a call for collective and urgent action by universities leaders and governing bodies to acknowledge and address staff student sexual misconduct in a systematic way. The definition that's been adopted of uh, sexual misconduct is multifaceted um, and it applies to all behaviour of a physical or emotionally intimate or sexual nature by a staff member that reasonably considered is inappropriate or unacceptable. And the definition that Universities UK have adopted includes both harassment in the way that we would understand it under the Equality Act, uh, unwelcome uh, conduct which has you know an effect of undermining the dignity of the uh, recipient of that treatment, but also broader concepts such as an abuse of power over a student or treating a student more or less favorably, either because they've submitted to or rejected such behavior. Um, there's a description of the nature and scale of the problem, and it's particularly concerning and disheartening to read it because it suggests that this is a broad cultural issue in higher education, that it's often not reported, often not well understood, and it has profound implications for those who experience it in terms of dropping out or detrimental impact on their learning experience. The guidance goes on to make recommendations in relation to things like institutional culture, the need to review policies and procedures so that they're fit for purpose, changes in practice that might deliver better outcomes, such as, for example, abandoning non-disclosure agreements, and the need to collect and report on incidents in an anonymized way uh, so that there can be uh, good learning. This guidance is going to be followed up by some more practical guidance about handling cases, we're told, in April. Um, But Tom, when you read the guidance, was there anything particular that sort of struck out to you as as notable? Yeah, thanks, Mita, and hi, everyone. It's as an employment lawyer um, who has um, worked with the sector for, for the best part of 20 years now. Um, Inevitably, of course, this is an issue that we've had to advise on um, uh, regularly, unfortunately, and and it's good to see it being tackled um, at a sector-wide level. I suppose the first thing to say is, sort of on a positive note, we've undoubtedly seen a, a sea change in attitudes to the way that these matters have been dealt with at an institution level um, since 2017 and sort of the the Me Too um, movement. I mean, that's, I suppose that's twofold really. So on the positive side, there's clearly a greater awareness of of the the problem and and the scale of the problem. Although of course, if you took a a slightly more cynical view because of that greater interest and awareness, there's undoubtedly an understanding that a failure to deal with these issues is going to result in poor PR. And we've seen that unfortunately for institutions in the the recent past. In terms of what stood out to me, I think what was was good was an acknowledgement of some of those, what we see as sector-wide issues because it crops up time and time again at different institutions that we've advised. And I think there's a a couple of things 
firstly, the the recognition that perpetrators move on um, and, you know, really underlining why these matters have to be dealt with out in the open and not hidden. Um, too often in the past, we have seen problems caused by um, settlement agreements that have been entered into by previous employers and confidentiality clauses. And, and you and I will, will go on and, and talk about that in a, in a little bit more detail. And I think the second thing as well was the, the recommendation that, that close personal relationships um, between staff and students should be discouraged. And I think that's the word that the, the report uses. I think, as a, again, as an employment lawyer, um, and, and sort of looking at this through that prism, too often the lack of policy or where there is a policy, one that fails to really properly discourage um, relationships has caused problems in tackling these issues. You know, too often if there's, there's an investigation, the first thing that the employee, the member of staff says is, well, it was consensual. And in any event, there's no policy that says we can't do this. And so the institution is immediately on the back foot in seeking to, to, to look at these matters. I suppose the question then is, um, I know the report talks about the discouragement. The question then is, well, you know, should it should we go further and ban them outright? You know, discouragement still, of course, leaves room for interpretation um, and where you're looking at more subtle misconduct. So I'm talking about the what what might in other circumstances be described as grooming the you know going out for a coffee and being very very positive about the the, the student but you know designed to flatter them essentially and that sort of more subtle mis potential misconduct as opposed to the more obvious physical and emotional misconduct that still is going to cause a problem in 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 investigations and proving it so um so there's some there are some really interesting bits in there i think yeah that, thanks, Tom. That's that's re that's really interesting. I think there were two sort of themes that also I wanted to pick up with you because I think they are consistent themes that emerge in cases like this. And the first is how do you balance the competing rights of staff and students? And by that I mean you've got two separate processes at play here: the student complaint on the one hand, and then the investigation and, and uh, disciplinary action potentially uh, against the member of staff. And there's no joining up of those processes. Um, so obviously the, 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 the staff process has a duty of confidentiality, information sharing can be a bit of a problem, but the student on the other hand also has um, an expectation of a meaningful outcome to their complaint or an understanding of what's happened to their complaint. So I suppose my question really is, um, is there a mechanism by which in, information can safely be shared between those two processes and if there isn't is there a way that we could go about creating a framework that allows better sharing of information having regard to those competing duties I don't know if that question made sense <laughs> yeah I mean I, I think it does I mean and I think absolutely get your point about um, the difficulties and the, and the way that the processes don't fit together. I mean, in terms of <clears throat> staff disciplinary policies, of course, every institution is going to have one of those and they're drafted in accordance with, with case law and statutes and they're designed to protect the employee from the overbearing employer and to ensure the fairness of process. But of course, that is sometimes going to cause problems in terms of how 
that relates to the process and the fairness and the information that can be given to the students. So a good example is um, uh, the use of anonymous evidence, for example, um, and the rules about anonymous evidence being used in a staff disciplinary process. And when, when that evidence can be safely and fairly relied on, um, those rules are quite complex for, for the tribunal's purposes. So there's a danger, and this is a massive oversimplification, but a danger that the de default position becomes in the employment process. Well, if you want to be comfortable um, employer that you're dismissing fairly, you're going to have to get someone to put their name to this. Um, and as I say, that's a massive oversimplification, but, but the reality is there's then pressure on the student or students, plural, um, to come forward and, and put, their, put their name to it. And then sort of coming on to sort of your question about sharing of, of information, that is again a, a very difficult issue because of the clash between the rights and the and the usual position would be in terms of the disciplinary process that it's, it's a confidential process no one other than the employee and the employer themselves are going to find out the outcome and there is that duty of confidentiality to the employee and so if the employee turns around and says no I don't want you disclosing to the student what what the outcome of this is it, it, there's going to be limited information as to what the employer can reasonably disclose without there being a risk of them breaching that that duty of confidentiality. Now, ultimately, depending on the position, depending on the outcome, they might decide to take that risk and, and, and breach that duty. Um, but but otherwise, the information is probably going to be limited to, well, there has been a process, there has been an outcome, we're satisfied with the outcome and it's reasonable. And actually some of the detail is going to be lost there and that's going to be very a very difficult message to give to the student and is there no way that um in both processes I, I'm, I'm mindful of the fact you know that the the office for the independent adjudicator for higher education and its good practice framework encourages institutions to share enough information um with the complainants complainants um, so that they have an understanding of what's happened to their complaints. Yeah. Uh, but, they, but it does recognise that obviously there are duties of confidentiality engaged here. And so I've always wondered whether one way round this would be to be clearer in the disciplinary process for staff that in these limited circumstances where the complainant is also an individual to whom the institution owes rights um, under other processes to, you know, they, they may have to share a bit more information, but it will be shared on the basis that it must remain confidential, you know, as between the, the, the complainant and um, the institution, you know, the institution, it can't, it can't be, it can't go any further. I mean, that in itself, obviously, then raises questions about non-disclosure agreements and stuff, which, which we'll come on to, but is there more that we could do in disciplinary processes that would still remain within the common law and the statutes that you've talked about? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and, and I think that's the, the key thing, Smita, that if if there was the specific right uh, from within the disciplinary uh, policy or process to make that limited disclosure, and that was made clear to the employee upfront prior to the process, then, then there's no reason why that wouldn't be lawful in the circumstances. The problem is, of course, most disciplinary policies have been drafted many years ago. Yeah. They haven't really given thought to this. 
Um, and so when it comes to the question of providing that information, everybody goes, oh, no, we can't do that because, you know, we've not got a right to. But you're absolutely right that in reviewing policies, I think institutions need to think a bit more carefully about what circumstances there may be in which they do want to provide that extra information and make a slightly wider disclosure of the outcome and therefore put the employee on notice that that may happen. Yeah, and going back to the overall thrust of this guidance, which is about culture change, it's about the policies and procedures and how practice needs to evolve to, to deliver that new culture, then that is something that, you know, would form part of that overall, how are we going to, to, to review this? I did mention that, that obviously the risk of, of disclosing stuff to the student, but then saying you can't tell anyone. Uh, is that you are straying into the the territory of you know if not a formal non-disclosure agreement certainly an attempt to constrain what a student can say and I remember reading um, when the you know periodically there has been moments of focus in the sector on should we use NDAs and one example was given of um, a, an individual um, student who apparently you know of course this is just how it's reported had been told she couldn't even discuss the matters with her family yeah. Um, and and you, you know you can see that that's deeply oppressive to, to a person who needs help and support. Um, so obviously the, the the mood in the sector has is moving away from the use of of non disclosure agreements, and um, we've we've had the the signing up to the pledge by several universities now, and whether that will will spread. And certainly the minister is very keen that it should be signed up to by more. So from from your point of view. Um, what are the, you know, are there any benefits at all, do you think, in getting somebody to sign up to a, a non-disclosure agreement if they don't want to? I mean, I think actually what the guidance makes clear is that there may be circumstances in which an individual says, I want this to be kept private. I mean, the complainant, not the not yeah. the person who's been necessarily found guilty. Um, and obviously in those circumstances, you have to you have to you know, have regard to that. So what, what are your thoughts about the use of NDAs? Yeah, I mean, of course, there are sort of two separate issues here. And again, it's it's from both the student and the staff perspective, isn't it? Um, as an employment lawyer, I deal with um, NDAs within settlement agreements for employees, um, and those are incredibly common. They're usually very tightly worded. Um, and the example you've just given, actually, about the student not being able to make any disclosure, um, even to members of their family, I could well imagine that, that that ended up because it was lifted straight from an employee's settlement agreement um, and put into the, the student's settlement agreement. Um, from, a, from a staff perspective, there has been a big pushback in the last four or five years on um, NDAs, um, you know, we're regulated by the Solicitor's Regulation Authority and, and they issued a warning notice about the use of um, non-disclosure agreements back in, in 2018 and, and making it clear that one couldn't use them to, to prevent people making protected disclosures. Now, you know, that's that's a very technical point and you know, what is a protected disclosure and you get into various legal arguments, but, but equally there's been a number of government consultations about restricting the use of um, NDAs in settlement agreements where there is uh, discrimination or harassment. Now, all of, all of those consultations and the report from various parliamentary committees have got stuck in the Brexit slash COVID um, le legislative backlog. Um, but I'm sure that is coming down the line. And I think that will be a good thing because I still think that there are circumstances, certainly from an employment perspective, where these are being misused and, and, and fully see the difficulty um, 
from a student perspective in, in, in using what's commonly termed gagging clauses um, in these circumstances. It, in some ways, it's probably not as big an issue where you're seeking to gag the employee because often the employee themselves doesn't want to talk about it. But what you shouldn't be doing is gagging your own institution. And again, that's where we see a problem that sometimes the institution ends up not being able to say what it wants. And this comes right back to where we started. And you asked me about um, the things that interested me in the report. And that's about perpetrators that move on. Um, and where you've got a settlement agreement that gags both parties and gags the institution in particular, and then they move on, that's where some of the problems start to arise because mm. I have undoubtedly given advice to institutions about um, uh, misconduct from members of staff where there is an acknowledgement that this has happened before a previous institution but nobody can talk about it because there's a settlement agreement in place and yeah. it's just a perfect example um, of why we need to be so cautious um, about their use and as you say there may be circumstances where it's appropriate but you've got to treat it with an abundance of caution yeah and actually although it's something that tends to come at the end of a process um without an ability to talk about these things without an ability to recognize they've happened and as you say you know take action to prevent their recurrence um wherever possible then we are never going to see the change in culture that uh universities uk's guidance is is highlighting is necessary and we're going to just continue to see the same problems uh, emerging so they're not really just at the end of the process they, they it's, it's that lack of transparency throughout that's often uh, the root cause of it um, Tom, thank you very much. I think that was, you know, it's a very difficult area, um, but as you say, it's not one that's going to go away. So we are going to have to grapple and engage with this guidance and, and, and the practical guidance that's going to come out later next month. And I'm sure you and I will discuss that in due course. So uh, thanks very much for listening to us today. We hope you'll join us next time. Um, and don't forget to hit the subscribe button. If you like what you've heard, please do leave a review.